Welcome to Story Shaped, the podcast about the stories that shape us and have the power to change the world. I'm Susan Cahill, debut children's author, and my co-host is the seasoned and wonderful children's author Sinead O'Hart. Together, we'll be taking you through some deep dives into the books that shaped us and interviewing other writers about their favourite and most influential stories. We hope you'll enjoy Story Shaped. time for story shaped once again um and this is our final episode for 2022 uh we are recording with hearts full of gratitude me and susan are both so happy to be uh to be bringing you uh, this this final episode of the year but also just to say that we have surpassed 2000 downloads of the Woo-hoo! podcast uh, overall <laughs> since we started at the very end of july um and our first proper episode really was was august I and mean, that's only sort of five months less than six months susan yeah not even six months, is it? Not even six August, months, September, no. October, November, December. It's like pretty much five months. Five months. So I think we're, we, we are just so happy for all the support and all the listeners and all the ears that have turned our way since we began uh, our podcast. Um, I know for me, anyway, personally, it's been one of the best things I've ever done. It's been so much fun. I've enjoyed it so much. Um, getting to talk to Susan every week has been great, <laughs> but also getting to meet all the wonderful um, authors, illustrators, artists, um, people that we have we have encountered during our uh, recording of the podcast has just been a, a privilege and a pleasure so we just want to say thanks so much to everybody who has tuned in who has taken part in any way um, um, we really are grateful for it yeah thanks to everyone who rated us who reviewed us who put us on lists we made we made a list did we make we made two lists two lists in one day I think yeah which was amazing, um, yeah. yeah we're so thankful for that and this is I think this is not only our last episode of the year but it's our last episode of season one as well isn't it Yes, I think we're going to wrap season one with this episode. Yeah, so, and so it, in a yes. circular fashion, <laughs> and circular circles are something that I'm going to talk about quite a bit in this episode. All will be revealed shortly. Um, but in circular fashion, we're going back to where we started, and we're going to end our season on another deep dive of a book that has meant so much to both me and Sinead. It's meant so much to me that I don't even remember when I read it first. <laughs> yeah so we we really enjoyed doing our beginning our, our season with uh with our three deep dive episodes so we're going to as Susan said finish with another one um and, and it's a seasonal book, one it's a seasonal one it couldn't be more seasonal for this time of year um and again like Susan it's it's a book that I don't remember reading for the first time even though I I know that I bought the uh it's part of a of a, of a sequence that's a clue mm-hmm Five, a sequence and of five, I, like a sequence of five books. Like how long our <laughs> yeah. podcast has been out. There's ooh, there's all these correspondences <laughs> already. <laughs> Susan's had her coffee, listeners. Yeah. Um yeah. <laughs> so yes, it's a sequence of five books, uh, or it's part of a sequence of five books. And um I bought the sequence of five books as a present to myself. Here's my beautiful edition here that I'm showing to Oh, Susan. that's gorgeous. And um, that I that Oh it's I bought, hardback, uh, is it? It's hardback sort of guilt it's beautiful and I, I got it as a, a present to myself uh, when I began uh, one of my my first job after college because uh, I didn't have the money to buy it until then um, and I've had it since then and I absolutely adore it um, but I know I I'm pretty sure I read this particular book uh, in my in my younger years but I can't I can't remember when yeah, exactly me too. I just um, it's it's yeah. just, it's so deep in there that when I read I read it like I don't maybe 10 years ago um and I was when I was reading it, I was like, I've read this before. This is yeah, this is so familiar to me. Um, we haven't told people what it is yet, have we? No, um, but we're kind of keeping the, keeping this the suspense is, going. This I'm showing Sinead. Wow, my, you have such a cool cover. This is only one of like I think I have three different. I own three different versions of this, and I've given one away. Um, oh, let me just describe your cover, and that might give the readers yeah, yeah. another clue. So we have we have a rearing white horse. We have a man on its back with stag's antlers coming from his head and he is the majestic Hearn the hunter and we wonder who this might be <laughs> or as I, I use whenever I think of Hearn the hunter I always think of Hearn the hunted who's in Terry Pratchett's book books uh, and he's the the god of everything that's small and furry and destined to end its life in a brief moist squeak and, oh, or something along brilliant. those lines 
And I think it's just genius. Uh, I love that. Hearn the Hunted. But no, yes, we have Hearn the Hunter on Susan's cover. Yeah, so I think he's on a lot of covers. Then? I think, I th well, yeah. I'm sure quite a lot of people are shouting at their phones or whatever device they listen to this podcast. <laughs> I'm like, I don't know. We but... know what the book is. Yeah. <laughs> it is The Dark is Rising by Susan Cooper. By Susan Cooper, the majestic, the dark is rising. Yes. Um, and I cannot wait to talk about this book. It is Me just too. an incredible book, an incredible book. We, uh, we both love it so much. Um, OK, I guess we should probably start with a plot summary for any listeners who haven't read the novel. Otherwise, our discussion will probably not make a whole lot of sense. Sinead, do you want to do you want to give a quick plot summary of The Dark is Rising? OK, well, I mean, it's a difficult book to summarize in tight space but i'm gonna do my best so here we go i believe in you so um, <laughs> thank you susan so the darkest rising uh, we have a character called uh, named will stanton who is turning 11 as the book begins um and will who has always believed himself to be the youngest of nine children and his parents sixth son is actually the youngest of 10 and his parents seventh son and his father's also a seventh son and we all know what happens when you're the seventh son of a seventh son on turning 11 will steps into the power of the old ones uh, a group of immortal beings present all over the world whose job it is to protect against the coming of the dark with a capital d uh, a malevolent soul-crushing horrifying power that can sap all life all joy all warmth and which is that it's most powerful at the darkest part of the year right before the winter solstice uh, when will has his birthday so at 11 will has to realize he is far more than just an ordinary boy He's part of an ancient struggle, um, an eons long, I guess, balancing act between the light and the dark. And he has to learn um, via his new friends, uh, an old man named Merriman Lion, or well, he's more than just an old man. Uh, and, and, and another character called the old lady, again, more than just an old lady. Um, and Farmer Dawson and John Smith, the blacksmith, these are all people who are more than they appear to be. Um, uh, so he has to learn from all these people exactly what his new power means uh, and, and why it's important. Um, and part of that training is he reads a book called The Book of Grammary, um, uh, a book which contains all the old one's magic. Um, he meets a dark rider who goes by a human name in one of the book's most electrifying passages. And this dark rider is his enemy right from the start. He meets a walker, a tormented man with a complicated past who also has another name and significantly who once wore a beautiful green coat. Um, he must collect six signs circular objects made from six different materials, wood, bronze, iron, fire, water and stone. And these signs, when put, when put together, will form a weapon against the dark. And as well as all this, he has to keep his family safe, for the dark can't attack or kill Will, as he's an old one, but they can target his family. Um, and if they break the circle of his family, they break the circle of magical protection forged by the light. So it's a lot to deal with. <laughs> and the book is steeped in folklore, magic, and that particular deep connection with place that marks so much classic lit children's literature of the period. Um, the early 1970s when this book was written. Um, the book also has connections with lots of medieval literature and tradition, um, including Piers Plowman, a 14th century allegorical poem about humanity's attempts to reach towards the light in one manner or another. And the book we're discussing also features characters like Hearn the Hunter, Wayland Smith and even King Arthur. Um, and I think we're going to go on to talk about uh, the folkloric and historical details that the author Susan Cooper is drawing on and how she uses them to enrich her tale. Um, and hope that's given some idea of what the book is is about and where we are as we begin our discussion. Excellent summary, Sinead. <laughs> Thank you, Susan. Um, and it's just amazing to talk about uh, a, a book that's been so like it's not only us. <laughs> I think it's it's one of the most influential books that's ever been written. I think mm -hmm. it's it's just and this time of year is the perfect time to reread it. Um, if you're looking for something to read that's seasonal uh, and that will really get you in the mood for. The magic and mystery of this turning of the year, um, the the winter solstice. This is the book to go for. Um, yeah, so we're recording yeah. it just before the winter solstice, but you'll be listening yeah. to it just after the winter solstice. So I know a lot of people start their reads on the people start on the twentieth of December, don't they? Even though the solstice yeah. is twenty first, but the book the book opens on the twentieth of December. Um, but you will be listening to this on the twenty second of December, um, as it's Thursday and story shaped day. <laughs> Yep. Um, and yeah, so it is the second, just to give a brief sort of sort of citing it within its cultural moment, I guess. Um, it is the second in a five book sequence um, written by the brilliant Susan Cooper, who uh, is an English author born in 1935 um, and still flourishing today, which is great. Which is the same uh, year as Alan Garner, isn't it? Alan, Alan Garner, Garner was born in 1935 so, yeah. as well. Yeah. 
there were contemporaries for sure yeah mm-hmm. and um she lives in america now but uh, when i was kind of reading uh, you know doing a bit of research for the podcast episode i actually learned something which blew my tiny mind which was that susan cooper didn't envisage um these books as a sequence when she first yeah. came up with them that she wrote she wrote the first book under sea under stone first and kind of left it as it was and then she published something else and then it was kind of she was skiing one day because she moved to new england where it snows a lot and she was skiing in this real heavy thick snow with her husband at the time and um realized she wanted to write a book set in england but with this same sort of you know deep like all-encompassing sort of snow um and that she the idea for for the character of, of will stanton who is the, the the hero of the darkest rising came into her head and then the whole sequence began to sort of unfurl and she she did kind of plot vaguely out, you know, characters and places and times of year that the books would be set at. And she wrote the last the last page of the of the overall story. Um, and so she kind of then worked for the next decade, you know, to kind of bring herself from Undersea Under Stone to to that page that she'd written to sort of tie up the whole the whole thing. That is very sensible. That, that's an amazing. It's very sensible it is very to sensible. write the ending. I wish I had done that with my it's 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 good it's a good thing to know where your book is going to go. But to me yeah. it's 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 <laughs> it's such a it's such a feat of of imaginative power like and, and mm. the, you know the the discipline of a writer that she she was able to get herself from from point a to point b or point whatever um you know it's just amazing but to think that she didn't have this as an overarching sort of sequence as uh, from the beginning is 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 incredible and i mean yeah, I suppose you can see you could you could nearly read the first two books in this sequence you know the undersea under stone and then the darkest rising separately that they, yeah. they don't sort of need each other as such um, you know, and when you read them in the, in the sense of the whole five book sequence, you can see how they all interlink. But they do work really well as a as a <clears throat> as standalone books as well. Yeah, and I think if you that, haven't read any of the others, there's no need I, to worry. Yeah, about you it. don't need to. I think if you if you just want to, and if you just want to read one, read The Darkest Rising. I mean, they're all brilliant though. But The Darkest Rising is is just the best. So <laughs> just so bucket, and especially because of its like winter time, Christmas like solstice, Christmas day. Um, yeah. Twelfth Night setting, which I want to talk yeah. more about. Um, yes, it's just full of that winter magic that I I love a book um, set in winter, winter magic, with, with yeah, that kind of that mysterious snow that covers everything and changes the landscape utterly. It's and you look definitely... out, at, you look out at a familiar landscape, and I think it's like the the landscape is I can't remember the quote now, but strangely familiar or familiarly strange or something. Some, something like that. I, that's actually a, a really brilliant image that I, I want to talk about as well. Or yeah. you know, we can mention it now. I suppose the image that Susan Cooper uses of the um the the snow blanketed landscape, which mm. just changes everything. You know, everything yeah. underneath is familiar, but it, it just looks so different. And it's such a great way of describing how Will sort of steps from his life into this dream, or not maybe not even dream, but this this alternate reality sort of almost, or this you know, because he's always stepping out of or being brought out of his own time and into into different times and into mm-hmm. different into different sort of realms um and i think the snow is such a fantastic way to really make that visceral and make it make it so tangible uh, and so easy to imagine um yeah and it's uh, like it uh, just as you're saying that it makes me think as well like as as the way that he's stepping out of like his own time into other times but it's also the snow is that brilliant um shortcut image for the way that he's stepping out of his like ordinary boyhood into being an old one because that when yeah will <clears throat> wakes up on the morning of his birthday which is winter solstice he is also kind of being rebirthed as an old one so he's no longer yeah. just a human boy he's also an old one which is part of this magic circle or the circle circle of old ones that stretches across the world that are tasked to protect light against the powers of the dark book opens on midwinter solstice winter solstice eve the eve before will's birthday um and things that will is already noticing that things are starting to get a bit strange the animals even his own dogs are scared of him being near the radio produces static um and i just said to Sinead just before we started recording this podcast that um, there should be there's a PhD thesis in static in children's, static in children's literature of the 70s um, from the 70s yeah for sure yeah so there you go <laughs> free free to a PhD student <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah so things are already turning strange um and the book is about kind of Will's initiation into this community of the old ones one of whom is a man called Merriman um who guides Will in this journey so it's a kind of a there's a psychological journey and there's physical journeys 
through time and through it quite a, well it's it's not a it's not a huge amount of space it's quite a kind of limited amount of space but like there's journeys through time to collect will has to collect six signs that will help to protect against the dark because the forces of the dark are the dark is rising um and will is the last of the old ones to be born i just love i love his his stepping into his power you know mm, i just yeah. say that you know the, the the changing of him from being an ordinary boy uh, into waking up the next morning to you know and everything just is different everything just feels different and he's just aware of things he wasn't aware of before and just you know and the most the most incredible powerful scene um is the scene when will is you know he he's kind of he's awakened in, in the night you know and he's and he, he feels the dark pressing down on him you know it's it's is it the night of his birthday the night before his birthday yeah it, it's it's the night before his birthday but um like the the way that susan cooper is able to envisage and describe the the depth of terror that he feels in 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 the dark is amazing. And I, I remember reading about her own life that she was a small child during the Second World War, um, and that she said one of the reasons she became a writer is because she grew up with um, you know, during during a time when you had to turn the lights off, you know, that we, you had to live in the dark a lot because you had to obviously stop bombers from being able to find your house. So you had to you had to turn off all your lights and, and live in the, in the blackout. Um, and that also she all she could do for a lot of those times in her bomb shelter was was read by candlelight, you know, um, and that's so all the reading she did and all the living in the dark, you know, definitely sort of uh, turned her imagination into what it is today. But uh, I often wonder, is that where she gets this power to describe the the visceral weight and the and the emotional? Uh, I don't know what it is, the psychological terror, you know, uh, that that comes with, with the dark in that scene. Yeah, and it's it's just this like this terror that's beyond himself that at that point he doesn't understand because he's not yeah. he's not become an old one yet. He doesn't know what the dark is, but he's just like the lights go off and he's just got this overwhelming sense of terror. It it is it isn't just the dark with a small D, it's the dark with it's the big the dark, D. Isn't it? Like yeah. it's, it's 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 more than it's more than just the absence of light. It's it's the presence of the dark. Yeah, yeah, that's a really lovely way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, for all the for all the kind of power, or like for all the point, or for all the importance of the dark, you know, with capital D, as a as a, as a symbol and as a message in this book, it's actually really hard sometimes. Like it, it's it's an amorphous sort of an enemy, like it's not, it's it's kind of hard to, mm-hmm. not hard to imagine. Like it, it, it kind of goes to the core of your your humanity. It go it goes to the depth of your bones and your blood and your soul. I mean, you know, when you really when you read about Will's terror, you can really feel it and you can really relate to it. But at the same time, it like the dark doesn't always it doesn't always come at night. The dark doesn't always take physic the physical form of darkness. No. I mean, you know, a lot of the time when the dark attacks, it's it's an emotional thing. It's a spiritual mm-hmm. thing. It's a you know, uh, they're like they're coming out of church on Christmas morning. Uh, Will and his and his family, and uh, Will and his brother and the vicar, get attacked by the dark. You know, and it's it's daytime because they're coming out of church, but it's more like a sense of oppressive t- terror and horror. And it's not it's not caused by it isn't, there isn't a monster outside the church. There isn't, you know, you don't see a villain riding you know down the road or whatever. It's just a, a sense of of terror and horror, and mm-hmm. you know, bone chilling fear that is 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 enough to immobilize people and will has to fight it back with with the three signs that he has at that point he doesn't have hasn't collected the full six yet but he has three of the signs and they're enough to, to push the dark back um for for that at that moment but it's just <clears throat> i i just find it interesting that the dark isn't always connected to the literal dark it's uh it's a more of a state of mind sometimes there's this one of the things that this book does beautifully well is this interplay between the coziness and the the kind of the the noise and the warmth and the love of the family and the family mm. home and the ordinariness of like the family preparing for Christmas with the otherworldly magic and the, and the novel constantly moves back and forward between those spaces and those feelings of ordinary cozy family and then the but at the kind of the the terror at the fringes and then the overwhelming terror but the the, the coziness at the the fringes at the fringes yeah. yeah. And I love how you're saying that the, the, the actual 
geographical space that they inhabit is is, is quite a small like it's, it's like mm. like a snow globe almost you know like oh that's lovely they're in this dome you know like the the actual geographical place that they're in doesn't change very doesn't go very far but there's so many levels there's so many layers mm. to the to the place they're in you know and and like the old ones one of the most amazing like will as as you said at the at start is, is an old one and he is going to be the last of the old ones and on his 11th mm-hmm. birthday he steps into this role as an old one but he's not the only old one there are several old ones in the story um and they they are people who reminded me a lot when i like i hadn't read you know I, I didn't make this connection really until i until i read the book again for the podcast but they're a bit like the 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 endless in the sandman you know neil gaiman's sandman you know they're, yeah. they're kind of not they're not, they're not gods but they're eternal immortal beings that are kind of always there um you know and they existed in all in all levels all layers of history so you know when, when they go back in time it isn't it isn't like they're taking their physical body back 100 years or back 300 years they're just going they're, it's, it's like they have like a place they can inhabit back 300 years ago they just kind of pop back to the body they had back then you know and kind of you know do whatever they need to do uh, and then they pop back to the modern day or wherever they need to be um and that that happens a lot in the book and it's really clever it's 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 really to me it's really unique um, an interesting way to talk about, you know, going back in, in different in time. But it means that there are certain characters that are kind of there's different versions of them. You know, Merriman exists in the modern world they, and he exists hundreds of years ago. So he he has existed through centuries. But so is the lady. Um, and so is um, uh, Lady Greythorn, who who lives in a, lives in the manor, which, you know, in, mm-hmm. in Will's Will's village. You know, she exists through the centuries, too. Um, and I just I just I just love that. <laughs> Can I read a quote um, that will but that references exactly what you're talking about um describes the the old ones and also will describe the signs that yes the, the six signs that will has to this is from the chapter called the trail so this is during will has to read a book of grammary um to kind of take in all of the the knowledge and wisdom and power of the old ones uh, so this is during his reading of the, the book of grammary and into will's mind Whirling him up on a wind blowing through and around the whole of time came the story of the old ones. He saw them from the beginning, when magic was at large in the world. Magic that was the power of rocks and fire and water and living things, so that the first men lived in it and with it as a fish lives in the water. He saw the old ones through the ages of men who worked with stone and with bronze and with iron, and one of the six great signs born in each age. He saw one race after another come attacking his island country, bringing each time the malevolence of the dark with them, wave after wave of ships rushing inexorably at the shores. Each wave of men in turn grew peaceful as it grew to know and love the land, so that the light flourished again. But always the dark was there, swelling and waning, gaining a new lord of the dark whenever a man deliberately chose to be changed into something more dread and powerful than his fellows. Such creatures were not born to their doom like the old ones, but chose it the black rider he saw in all times from the beginning it's so beautifully written it's it's a, it's such a poetically gorgeously lyrical story you know the the beautiful refrain or the kind of the poem that cooper puts through oh, the book yes you know when the dark comes rising six shall turn it back three from the circle three from the track wood bronze iron water fire stone five will return and one go alone so this is the this, these are the six the six signs wood bronze iron mm-hmm. water fire stone so this there's a sign for each of those elements that uh, will has to collect um and um sign itself is i think the shape you were saying to me before we started recording is really significant um a circle mm-hmm. with a cross shape through it yeah so the the shape of the circle is a really 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 ancient shape like the first like the first kind of carvings you'll see on like neolithic um tombs are you'll see circles yeah so the the circle is a like it's a sign of the sun mm-hmm. Like it's a very, very ancient symbol of the sun and a symbol of sun worship. I have here a book, um, a book that is written by my uncle, <laughs> who's an archaeologist. Um, my uncle and aunt, who are both archaeologists. My aunt works for Cork County Council. Um, and this is a book produced by Cork County Council. And my uncle wrote it. It's called, it's called Heritage Artifacts of County Cork by... Yeah, it's wonderful. By whom? Um, well, it's a Cork County Council, but Dennis Power is my uncle, who is the author of this awesome. book. And Mary Sleeman is my aunt, who um, put the whole book together and edited it and, and Mary. wrote awesome. stuff. And Dennis and Mary, yeah. Um, but I'm looking here at page 58. There's an image of a, um, 
a Bronze Age lunula, which is a kind of moon-shaped um, disc that was probably worn as a kind of a like necklace. A collar or necklace, yeah. And there's two little circular discs that go along with it. This is a lunula from Collabeg, County Roscommon. It's from the, it's in the National National Museum of Ireland. If you want to go look at it, um, but it's got a it's got a lunula, which is like symbol of the moon, or a boat. Um, well, I think it's been interpreted in um, some kind of readings of these these um, objects as a boat, and then it's got two discs that are circles with crosses in them. Um, and I will read you what my uncle wrote. So he said, sun worship is well attested to in Bronze Age Cork. Nearly all of the ritual monuments from the period are oriented to the southwest, the direction of the midwinter setting sun, most famously at the Stone Circle in Drownbeg, Glandor, which is oriented at the midwinter solstice at sunset. It's hardly surprising that primitive farming communities held the sun in special regard. They were well aware that the seasonal movement of the sun in the sky was vital to their survival, ensuring that crops grew and ripened when they should. The sun was their calendar and their god. And so like, I feel like these symbols are they're speaking back to that very, very ancient practice of sun worship mm-hmm. um, and all of those stones, well, all of the kind of stone monuments in Cork and elsewhere are, um, mm-hmm. and Newgrange, yeah. Newgrange is, um, Newgrange and Mays Hole in, um, in Orkney, um, they're all oriented towards the midwinter sun. And it's really significant that this novel is set like between winter solstice to Twelfth Night, like that setting is so resonant and, and powerful yeah. um and if i can just nerd out about winter solstice is that shortest day longest night and it's really important in um pagan celtic traditions and yeah we've got the the, the monuments in cork we've got newgrange in ireland we've got maze ho in orkney um and it's so it's winter winter solstice is like it's the darkest time of the year it is the longest night but also what's important about winter solstice is it's that moment when we tip over into the return of the light. And the sol- solstice literally means the sun is standstill. So it's that moment. And I guess it's that moment of like, is the sun going to start to come back? Like, are we going, we're, we've got the longest night. Is the sun going to return? Is the light going to return? Um, so it's that very, very elemental battle between the dark and the light with light ultimately winning dark half of the year and that was always associated with well that was winter but it was associated with like magic dark the other worlds dreaming um oh, I, love, I love that part of the year I'm, all, I'm that's all me I know totally. me too I'm such a dark and th- I'm such a winter person Go on. I, sorry yeah yeah <laughs> I'm, I'm getting I'm getting I'm getting chills here isn't she it's amazing it's, oh, <laughs> brilliant um, <laughs> And it's, uh, th- that period of time is always a, a period of time for telling stories as well. Um, you know, you're, you can't farm. You're, you're sitting in and you're sharing <laughs> stories and you're talking about magic and dreams. And, the time um, and, then, you, and then you've got Christmas, which is like, like uh, so many, like there's so many different layers of like folklore around Christmas. But as the one that I want to just point to is like, you know, for, in Christianity, it's the birth of the sun, but also the sun is... The sun is S-O-N, mm-hmm. but that's also S-U-N. Yes. And in The Dark is Rising, Will notes, this is in the chapter, oh, it's again in the chapter called Betrayal. Which, it's a very important chapter, um, actually. Very important chapter. It's, yeah. So he says, this was Christmas, which had always been a time of magic to him and all the world. This was brightness, a shining festival. And while its enchantment was on the world, the charmed circle of his family and home would be protected against any invasion from outside. So there's this like recognition of this is, from winter solstice to twelfth night is this period of time of intense magic and like and, liminality and danger and transition and <laughs> yeah. danger. Um, yes. And twelfth night is like then in Christian tradition, twelfth night is like the epiphany, um, the arrival of the wise men, the revelation of the Christ child to to the, the wise men and the the, the star as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just so much like folklore and mythology and symbolism around darkness and light and the coming of the sun and Susan Cooper uses all of that so effortlessly and beautifully mm-hmm. and deeply like there's just this sense of this novel that it's drawing on really really deep magic yeah absolutely the power of Susan Cooper's book lies exactly in what you were saying there like that she draws so effortlessly on on all this all this mythology and folklore um 
and it, it's it's that's what gives this book such such a power i mean like is there anything more primal like to me i'm actually literally i feel like um you know shaking listening to you talk because it's just drawing on something so deep in me this sense mm. of this is the time of year when we we did not know our ancestors did not know whether the sun was going to come back we, we did they did not know whether they were going to survive um and no wonder that there are so many um stories and and tales and folklore surrounding this is the sun going to come back will we live for another year um it's there isn't anything more primal uh, i don't think in in, yeah. in human culture um and it was a dangerous yeah. time like it was you know you can't farm you have to rely on, on your stores the, you know harvest of the pre of the, of the of that year and you need to make it through this dark time yeah. like in dark in all kinds of ways yeah it's just it's it's a beautiful it's an amazingly um charged time of year to set a story in and she really does she really does take that mm. one of the things that that like winter solstice and the returning of the light and the marking of the returning of the light um reminds me of is that the idea of like cyclicality and seasonality mm -hmm. and the cycles of the light and the dark um and that like the that that cycle that circle that sun but i became obsessed with circles as I was reading through this book not only because of the signs themselves being circles with the the cross and that again that cross is like related to the rays of the sun but it's also like dividing into four the four seasons so yeah so we've got the signs we've got the, the circle as the symbol of the sun the circle as the return of the light but also and, and also the old ones are always described as the circle of the old mm. ones and it's a circle that stretches around the globe so time is cyclical and circular in the novel time is not linear in the novel merriman says all times coexist and the future can sometimes affect the past even though the past is a road that leads to the future so there's a sense of time as circular, circular. and yeah. co coexisting yeah like, which i guess too to an old one that's how time exists yeah 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 and it's the same sense of time as alan garner as well that's like there's so much that reminds me of alan garner yeah like the deep time idea you know that there's there's yeah. different ways of measuring time like i mean there's there's the sort of the fleeting linear time that we exist in as, as humans but the the longer more deep more you know sweeping uh sort of arcs of time that exist you know through eons rather than through yeah. lifetimes you know um that that sense is there for sure and in the Christmas Day chapter, it, when they're in the church, Will says, there's not really any before or after, is there? Everything that matters is outside time. So again, there's no before. Or, and in a circle, there's no before or after. And also, what I noticed, oh, his family is also described as a circle. Like he's within the circle of service. So the circle seems to be quite a protective space sure, as well. Yeah. Um, and then there's structurally, every time Will gets a sign, there is a circular pattern or a circular structure to the way that Susan Cooper tells that. And it's most apparent or like most kind of obvious on the page in the chapter called The Coming of the Cold. It's He's in the hall, the Greythorpe Manor, yeah. not the hall, Greythorpe Manor. Can you see wondering Will moved forward as if to warm himself and as he was told? He ran his hands gently over the sign of iron, the sign of bronze, the sign of wood, the sign of stone. He's standing beside the fire. Yeah, so you see his fingers reach the end of the journey around the last sign because he trace, so he's tracing all of the signs. He's running he his fingers around the edges of the sign. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, he's doing the circular movement. He looked up, he looked up, he looked and he saw dot, dot, dot. And then dot, dot, dot. Next line, dot, 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 he, he saw. saw. And then he saw not to do model. And then if you look, there's about two pages where he's like. He's in a different, he's back, in a different time or in, in a different in place. Hall. Yeah, yeah. And then he and then returns he looked to... up and he saw dot 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 yeah. dot 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 and he saw so each one of his collection of the signs there is like a kind of movement backwards and forwards in time and uh just that kind of rep particularly in that section that repetition of he looked and he saw dot 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 and he looked and he dot saw dot dot, 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 yeah. dot later there's yeah there's um so there's this constant circularity that's happening structurally every time he finds a sign but you're absolutely right that bit and that's very clear that you said it's, mo it's most evident in that scene and you're right yeah. <clears throat> yeah i just saw it as a way to sort of show him going back to learn something or whatever but it is actually true it's it's he's he's running his finger around the edge of the circle he's making the sign of the circle and he's going back and he's coming back to yeah it's a total circle he, he goes full circle from his own time to yeah. the past 
and then back to his own time again. So that's really cool. And so I feel also, like every time he gets a, or the novel is structured in the series of of circles um, in, w- in which he, he gets a circle and then they're all tied together like at the end like the, the like this, as a whole. That's like, amazing. Just just like yeah. the six signs are put on a chain together at the end by the smith to, to become the weapon yeah, so against the very, dark. Wow. Very clever structurally. That's amazing. And again, it, it, it's shop. no, that's it's sparking my, my medievalist brain again, because there's a there's a poem which isn't referenced, I don't think, directly really in, in, in this book. But there's a poem called Pearl, which is done the very same way. It's structured like a circle. And it's I suppose, I suppose it's, it's to echo maybe a rosary. You know, it's kind of it's kind of done. Oh, it's yeah. structured that same way that it, it ties itself back to the start at the end. And it's it's all very well, all structured like a circle. So that could be again. And because like Susan Cooper studied at Oxford in the 50s and she mm. was lectured by both the titans, you know, the titans of, of kids literature, but also fantasy literature and also medievalism, um, you know, C.S. Lewis and J.R.L. Tolkien. And she said she didn't meet either of them in person, but that she says for sure anybody who was there at that time and who had the privilege of being lectured by those two people or being taught by them, like definitely it had an effect on her and her life and what she chose to do with her life. And, you know, she said everybody must have been touched by them in some way because, you know, it was a, it was just a very fertile place, I suppose, to be a be a to be a student um i would have certainly if i could go back in time to any time it would be to the lecture hall of tolkien or c.s lewis it would be a dream for me for sure um so i'm sure like that's there's a reason why there's so much medieval um uh, so many hints of medievalism but there are there are a few sort of you know specific um medieval references and to me to me the heart of the story and i know that the story is about will and his family and will as the sign seeker and sign uh you know the, the questing for the signs and um, and it's his job to 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 develop this weapon against the dark. But for me, the emotional heart of the story is actually nothing to do with him. It's it's a uh, it's the story between Merriman and Hawken. Oh, yeah. Um, and when I was reading this book, um, again, it, it's, it struck me. It's not something I ever thought of before, but it, I think it's completely it has to be. There has to be a link here. There's a character in a in a medieval poem called Piers Plowman, written by a man called William Langland. Um, there's a character called Hawken. Um, and he is referred to in the poem as uh, as the active man. Um, uh, I remember going to lectures years ago by the, the late, great Professor Terry Dolan, who was an absolute oh. passionate <laughs> defender of this poem. Um, and he, he he just loved it so much. Um, and uh, he always he always referred to Hawken, the active man. Um, and uh, I, can, <laughs> I can hear his voice in my head as, as I say the words. Um, Hawken is, uh, you know, he's only one character in in many um you know uh, Pierce Plowman is a very alleg- like like most <laughs> medieval poems it's a hugely allegorical piece of work so we, we have a character called Will um in Pierce Plowman as well um, in Pierce Plowman yes oh, yeah really? so the central character is called Will uh Will is, is the central character but again he's he's allegorical like I mean he's seen as a version of 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 human will um but also as an echo or a version of the author whose name was William so William Langland but of course we have Will Stanton as well you know in the in Dark is Rising so yeah. there has to be to me there has to be a direct link there um but uh Will I'm sorry Hawken rather is in Piers Plowman is a character that is described as being um uh he's he's now I'm going to quote from um when is Piers Plowman written? Is it is it 14th the 13th century, century? 14th century, yes. So even though Hawkins okay. we're told it's from the 13th century, but I mean, you know, we're told he's from the 13th century rather, but that 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 you know, but it's you know, it's in or around the same same time period. Um mm. but there's a there's a blog I read about Piers Plowman called the Constellation of Reading. I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. Um, but Hawk and the Active Man, the man, this ho- this man is all about appearance, wanting to appear the smartest, greatest, holiest, and best of men. He is all talk, pretends to be holy, but is really a sinner and prideful. His sins appear as specks and or sorry, dirt and specks on his outer coat. And such a man eventually ends up in a state of despair. Um, and that's basically that that's what Hawken Hawken in the Pierce Plowman is about mm. that. He's a man who prides himself on his appearance. He has this beautiful coat that he wears, but he the he he constantly talks about the coat becoming dirty, that the coat is speckled and spotted, covered in dirt. And the dirt is symbolism is a symbol or, or an allegory for human sin, you know, that no matter how often he cleans it, so you know, via confession or contrition. Um, the coat becomes dirty again, um, and he can't keep it clean. At the end, in in Piers Plowman, um, Hawken he takes off his coat. This is a quote from Anna Baldwin, um, a scholar of the text. He takes off his coat, which is the symbol of his property and his sin, and he walks out of the poem with patience, naked, save for his shame, um, like Adam re-entering paradise. Um, so basically, the coat. I mean, like to me, um, the Hawken in in Darkest Rising is not like you know he's he's 
not exactly the same, but I mean, Hawk in, in The Darkest Rising is described when we first meet him um, at the party that Will, Will goes to in, in the manor as wearing a beautiful coat. Uh, his, you know, his, 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 green, his, his green coat is described as it's, it's kind of made an important part of his depiction in The Darkest Rising. Um, and he's described as being handsome and lively and full of character and full of humanity, full of vim and vigour. But like Hawken in Pierce Plowman, he is weak and prone to corruption. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, the Hawken we see in The Dark is Rising is a version of the medieval one, you know, albeit maybe a version who is given much more nuance and depth, because, of course, the medieval version is is, a, is an allegory. So, you know, with an allegory, there's not so much you can do, <laughs> you know, but with a character in a modern novel, you can do a lot more, um, you know, and the pain and sorrow, um, uh, you know, because Hawken in the book, in The, in the Dark is Rising, is so important. Um, you know, it's it's it is he and Merriman who have this, um, you know, the the there's a betrayal between the two of them. Like Merriman basically took Hawken from his own century, he took him from the 13th century, uh, made him like he was his liege man. Merriman says in the book that um, um, Hawken's parents died, and he took him uh, as his own son. You know, and uh, and 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 Hawken loves him deeply. You know, he says never never was there a son better loved than me. You know, by by my my foster father Merriman or my my liege lord. But Merriman takes him from his own century and gives him gives him a burden of responsibility that is too great, too great for any human man. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so uh, the sorrow of the of his eventual betrayal of Merriman is so deeply moving to me. Anyway, it's it's the heart of the book. Um, you know, the Hawken of Pierce Plowman is seen as essentially a flawed human, one is pre- who is predestined to fail just because he's human. Um, but the Hawken of The Dark is Rising is a character upon whom too much is placed, you know, who is betrayed and wounded by someone he loved and trusted, um, you know, his liege lord, Merriman. And so that his failure is inevitable. But it's also it's understandable, you know, um, yeah. because as you were talking about the book of the book of Grammarie, the book that contains all the magic and all the knowledge of the old ones that will has to has to read or has to basically absorb <laughs> it kind of goes into his head like you know like a program um you know but the, that book is guarded by a by a a complicated magical protection and that when he realizes that merriman and the light were willing to let him die if if need be um that is the that is the crack in the light you know that that is sort of the place where the dark can get in you know, but my my heart and my sympathy and my emotion is all with Hawken in this situation. You know, um, I can totally, totally empathize um, with with how he feels. And at the end, when when Hawken eventually is betrayed again by the dark, you know, he he betrays the light, he betrays the light uh, and he lets the dark in. And then at the end, he, and he turn, turns, turns to the dark. But then at the at the end, the dark betrays him and lets him down. Um, and the, the, the scene of kind of. I don't know what, whether it's even reconciliation, but the scene of recognition uh, between himself and Merriman, where they kind of finally have this reckoning of, you know, we 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 loved each other, we love each other still, uh, you know, and he, basically there's forgiveness there, isn't there? And Merriman lets him mm-hmm. go back to his own time where he where he can die in peace, and you know, where he says, I I can I can go now, I can I can leave my burden, I can I can set this burden down, and you know, he eventually gives him the peace of going back and 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 just you know being a human again um but, but albeit a dead one <laughs> but i mean it's just it's to me that's that's the heart of the book and it makes me emotional to think about it you know but definitely i think there's a there's a connection between it and the the the, the, the pierce plow and the the medieval poem um even from the names of the characters to the fact that you know hawken wears a coat <laughs> that's significant enough to be described a few times when we first meet him um you know there's def- definitely there's a resonance there but there's a scene when will discovers the sign of fire i believe I get the page now. Um, he sees that there's an inscription on it, and basically the inscription is "Licht mech hate yewirkan." Licht mech hate yewirkan means light commanded to have me made, or light instructed to have me made. And that, when I saw that, I just squeaked with delight because that is basically a version of an inscription that appears on a piece of Anglo-Saxon art called the Alfred Jewel. Except the real the real version is Alf Alfred uh, Mekhaz which means you know Alfred mm, okay. c- commanded to have me made, and Alfred is uh, the only English king called the Great. He's my favorite king. I love him. Um, <laughs> and the Alfred Jewel is a is a piece of beautiful um, uh, art that dates from his reign, sort of ninth century England. Um, it's basically like a teardrop shaped piece of um, rock crystal, gold. Uh, I don't know, uh, lapis lazuli, but whatever. Any kind of, you know, I can't think of exactly what's what, what's in it. But there's a little, a little picture, you know, at the back of it, and then it kind of gets it's covered over by rock crystal. Um, and there's a hole at the end of it, like a little kind of a 
a space at the end where perhaps once a, a pointer was like a, a wooden pointer was stuck in. So the pointer hasn't <clears throat> hasn't survived, but we do have the we have the head part where, which would have been held in the hand, mm-hmm. and it was used possibly as a as a kind of a pointer to keep your place when you were reading in text or when you were you know reading the Bible possibly. Um, but Alfred was a king who was really invested in um, education, uh, literacy, um, you know, committing uh, committing history to paper basically. You know, he 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 wanted to. Uh, he he, just, he was really a literate king, and he was he was that's what he that's what he loved to do. And the fact that this is what one of the things that remains from his reign, I always found it to be a beautiful um, testament to that part of his character. You know, but to me, uh, when I was reading the book um, *The Dark Is Rising*, I was thinking, you know, what better symbol of the light is there than the enlightenment of education and, and reading, and the, the you know the illuminated manuscripts of the Middle Ages, and you know the mm-hmm. the, the beauty of of making reading accessible to people you know so i just think it's it's beautiful that susan cooper kind of referenced that in her in her sign of fire she puts this inscription on it which echoes the inscription on on the alfred jewel which is a real piece of beautiful art from the ninth century um and all about all about light the light of the enlightenment (laughs) not necessarily the late not not the actual enlightenment but the enlightenment of education and and literacy um yeah and it's so significant then that like also because uh will's like access to his powers is through a book. Yeah, it's the through book the of book grammar. of grammar. Yeah, sure. Her prose is really Anglo- like Anglo-Saxon or medieval as well, isn't it? It's quite a, a literary. Yes, literary. The way she uses language. Look at what's I'm happening here. I'm looking at here. the sun beaming um, through your room. It's beautiful. You have a gorgeous. Uh, uh, there you go. The sun is the sun is out to greet us <laughs> and to tell us. Yeah, the sun is like as as we've spoken. The sun has come around to the wind. This window yeah. on my right, and it's like just streaming in. Soon, Sinead won't be able to see me because I'll be just a creature. You'll be a creature of, of pure light. light. <laughs> you'll, you'll be the you'll be the lady. <laughs> Maybe you are the lady. <laughs> does, that, does that make me merry man? I'm happy with that. <laughs> we are the old one the for old. the purpose of this podcast. Absolutely, for sure. Have we said that this all t- takes place in the, the Thames Valley? No, go on. So as well as the time being, the time frame being really significant, the place is really significant. And it's all taking place in the Thames Valley in quite a kind of, I suppose, a, as I said, a limited um, or a, like a geographically limited, but very resonant yeah. place. And it's an extremely powerful spot that she's chosen to cite the story, yes. for sure. Yeah, And she's all, she's drawing on folklore of that place. Hearn the Hunter is really interesting because Hearn the Hunter is, so he is first named in Shakespeare, in the Merry Wives of Windsor, and he's very associated with, with Windsor, with an oak tree. Really? You see that? You see that um, recent? That's yeah. amazing. I thought, I just assumed. Yeah. I, I, well, I keep thinking of him like, being like Kernunas, you know, the, the Celtic, there's a Celtic god yes. that has antlers on his head as well, and he's also like a, a god of hunting or a god of you know, hunt, yeah. hunt animals. He's definitely connected. That's amazing. He's definitely so connected to a resident of him. Good old Billy Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Oh, there you go. But he but Shakespeare there is drawing on older folklore. Um right. And so it's like the the stuff around Hearn, it's quite hard to like it's quite hard to just to figure out where he where he really comes from because there's kind of ghost a ghost story about like Hearn the hunter. Um connected with Windsor particularly yeah. um I'm reading here that Windsor or Hearn's Oak was in Windsor yeah. originally yeah yeah but then like him connected with the wild hunt obviously then connects him to like much much older traditions like in like you know you've Scandinavian and Germanic stories about the wild hunt that and there he's led by Odin the wild hunt Odin, is led yeah, by yeah. Odin. So Hearn is kind of he's connected to Odin and he's connected to the Celtic god Serranus. Serranus, um, I always said, Cernus. yeah, yeah. Go on, Cernunus. Um, I actually don't know how you say it. Again, it's a word I've only Cernus, ever seen written yeah. down. I think it's, I think it's Cernunus. Yeah, yeah. Who has the antlered head? Yeah. Um, and it's it's um, funny because when you talk about Odin, it's actually it's pinged another thing into my head. Um, in oh, in yeah. the book, you know, one of the names that the writer goes by. Uh, when he comes into the human world, he he kind of visits uh, the family's house on Christmas morning. Yeah. And uh, he purports to be, or his, like for some, maybe it's a magic that his father is under a glamour or a spell or something like that. Um, His, uh, Will's dad uh, sees him as one of his colleagues, you know, a man who who is the jewel dealer. Um, and he calls him Mr. Mr. Mitothen or Mr. Mitothen. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, Mitothen was, is a, is from Danish folklore. Dan- uh, he's, he was a wizard who took advantage of the absence of Odin to usurp his place as head of the Aesir. So the Aesir were like the, the gods of, of Norse mythology. 
so Matothan is you know that name is not a it's not accidental An either accident. you know it's another one of these yeah. little uh, tidbits of of kind of you know medieval medieval literature and folklore but anyway sorry so yeah so Hearn is is a is a form of Odin as well yeah. and Hearn so he's drawing like he's drawing on so much of what like I guess because like English folklore is like influenced by such a variety of like it's influenced by Celtic mm. by Roman by Norse, Norse yeah. by Germanic, Germanic. <laughs> like it's yeah. like a, it's all of that stuff is and Hearn the hunter is kind of the, like he draws all of that stuff together um or he kind of pings out into a variety of different places and he's also like that kind of symbol of the wildness of the forest and this energy that exists beyond the light or the dark yeah, and I find it really interesting that both in Cooper and Alan Garner, you have that, you have this other kind of older ancient magic that it's deeper than anything that the modern. Yeah, know, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But do you think as well there's nothing to be said about the fact that sometimes the light acts in a quite a dark way? Yeah, yeah. I don't think she's as like binary as 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 it seems like mm. I don't think there is that really clear-cut distinction between the light and the dark light good dark bad um they're much there's a, there's a kind of much more blurry morality going on there. yeah I mean when you think about just to go back for a second to, to the story about Hawken being pulled from his own century by Merriman and being made to carry this burden for hundreds of years it's quite a it's quite a cold and arrogant and yeah you know not a very not a very uh generous or whatever thing to do and it's like and Merriman sees it as his own he sees it as a mistake he made like you know I I made the mistake I was arrogant enough to assume that this this person this man could withstand this burden but of course you know he couldn't and therefore his 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 betrayal was inevitable um you know but and also you know isn't there a scene too when at the in the church on Christmas day when Will and his brother and their vicar are coming out um and the dark attacks that uh, Merriman uses the power of the light to wipe the memory of Peter the brother and the vicar you know so that they don't remember mm. anything about the the attack for, for for their own good within quotation marks I guess because it was too painful a thing or too too damaging a thing to remember but still it's not a not very ethical <laughs> maybe yeah you know. yeah but um but certainly I think Hearn operates on a different level you know um I think he's 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 out to hunt because that's what he does he's the hunter and he will hunt you know and whatever his quarry yeah, whatever, is whatever his yeah. quarry is he will hunt it you know whether it's good bad or indifferent uh, you know I think isn't don't they say to in the book that this is the first hunt in a thousand years where Hearn has actually had something to hunt like that he just he rides mm -hmm. anyway no matter he's summoned every year every hunt like he is every year the hunt is summoned but they don't always have a quarry and this year they have they have a quarry so he's going to enjoy it more <laughs> or whatever but I, I love the bit with Hearn, Hearn the hunter and, and the, the hunt especially when like the you know the uh, the denouement of which are the, the the climax of which is kind of up in the air like up in the sky you know it's just it's just such a beautiful it's just an amazingly powerful thing to imagine um you know the, the final showdown between the light and the dark you know and Hearn on the side of the light I suppose even though he's separate from it as you say I think I think I agree with that you know fighting he's you know he catches his quarry the dark the, the dark rider um but yeah and I mean you were saying that the, the the area that the story takes place in the Thames Valley is connected to um it's not her. Is it her, or is it is it Wayland Smith, or both? Are they both, well, both, are both connected both. to it? Yeah, yeah. Because her is because like, it's like the when Susan Cooper grew up in this landscape, and she said she could see like it's near Windsor. She could see Windsor Castle from her bedroom window. Well, it's like it's Buckinghamshire. It's Thames Valley. It's um, you know the the Windsor forests are are there. Um, so her and the hunter in kind of this. Kind of, I think the Shakespearean iteration of her and the hunter is all around that area, is it, which yeah. is it, the Merry Wives of Windsor. Course, yeah. Like it's it's that yeah. place, and then Wayland. There's a place called Wayland Smithy yeah. um, in Uffington near the near the um, chalk white yeah. horse, um, and there's a long barrow with standing stones, um, which is called Wayland Smithy. Yeah, um, and um, there's folklore around which I read in a book called Britannic Smiths, which is an excellent book um we'll put the link to the uh, link to that in the show notes as yeah. well um that there's folklore about like if you tie your if you tether your white horse yeah and i guess specifically a white, a white horse, horse yeah near the passage and you put put, put some, some an offering of an offering of coin or something coins, onto, onto the stone then yeah. your horse will be um shod by 
by Wayland. And Wayland is, I, I don't think we need to go into all of the, it's quite gruesome, the story. Yeah, we won't go into all the details it of Wayland it's, Smith. It's really gruesome. But it's, he, he's, he's much older, like he, he goes back, he goes back. Uh, I, I love the bit in the book when Will calls, you know, John Smith, the, the Smith, like the actual Smith yeah. that's in the story. And he he'd want, he just refers to him randomly without even knowing why he calls him John Wayland Smith. And then he, he stops yeah. and he stops and he goes, that's not his name. John Wayland's not in his name. Why did I call him John Wayland Smith? And uh, Merriman says, well, our minds hold more than we know type thing. But I know, no, I nobody ever guy. explains to, to Will who or why he did that. Like, or, or mm-hmm. you know, and I mean, Wayland Smith goes back. Um, uh, it, it, it's He's a character from Germanic, Icelandic, Anglo-Saxon folklore. He's mentioned in the Quetic Edda, um, which is dated to about the 11th century. He turns up in a later 13th century Icelandic saga called Tidrik's Saga. Um, he's mentioned in Anglo-Saxon sources like Waldera and Beowulf. Um, and he's also mentioned in um, Alfred the Great, my, my pal Alfred's uh, translation of Boethius <laughs> from the 9th century mentions um, mentions uh, Wayland Smith. And I mean, some of, I think some of the literary sources for him are kind of fragmentary. Like we don't necessarily know all of the legends. I mean, I, th- I think the implication is that he used to be like in the day. He was a much more you know, kind of important or famous or well-known sort of mythological figure than than he is now because we've lost a lot of stuff that ex- would have existed about mm-hmm. about him. So he goes back, you know, a long, long way. He's he's an ancient figure, you know. But the fact that you know that Will connects John Smith, the, the actual Smith from his own time, to John Whale, he calls him John Whale and Smith means you know that this this man, this this Smith is actually Whale and Smith, and he goes back, you know, to the mm-hmm. beginning of human culture. Basically, you know, he's been there always. Um, I love that. And the, I think when I was looking up um, all of the references to to Wayland, the the one piece of information that seemed relevant to the, his appearance in this book is that Wayland's under a supernatural obligation to shoe any horse that comes into. So he's not free. He's like he has to shoe whoever, whatever horse comes into his his, his smithy. And he's like he's an amazingly powerful magician and smith blacksmiths are always so magical and they're always connected to like the four like because they can they bring together the four elements earth air water fire in the that's the true yeah, yeah um um but they're like they're part of a very elemental magic a lot of my favorite books have smiths in them including the hands of the morrigan has a smith yeah. in it who yeah. plays a very important role yeah, smiths are, yeah. they're so I'm magic sure. can i read the last line of the book and in a great blaze of yellow white light the sun rose under hunter's coom and the Valley of the Thames. It's just like the book ends in that solstice moment of like the, the sun, the sun coming up over that particular place. Like the last word of the book is the Thames. Yeah, the magical, mystical, mysterious river, which features in so many uh, myths and legends and stories. Because it's uh, you know, like all rivers, I think it carry it carries such such a yeah. weight of folkloric importance. You know, if anybody is listening who hasn't read the book uh, or who is who is if anyone's still listening <laughs> after our deep <laughs> deep deep nerd out <laughs> and I suppose like we've really dug it out like we've really unpacked it in terms of it's like folkloric and mythic and um, medieval literary references but I suppose what one thing to say about it is it's just it's a brilliant, brilliant story, story. Yeah. Like, from when yeah. you start reading it like the pace of the novel the like musicality of the novel the imagery of like it's just got the most beautiful powerful imagery especially that one we spoke about at the beginning which is that like will wakes up and he looks out and it's like the whole world is covered in snow and then in the blink of an eye the whole world is covered in forests because he's slipped through through time time. yeah i mean as well yeah i mean like 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 we say in a lot of these deep dive episodes you don't have to know any of this extra stuff you don't have to be aware of any of the deeper layers of meaning to to appreciate this book for what it is because it is genuinely a masterpiece of I want to say children's literature it's a masterpiece of fantasy literature it's yeah. uh, it just happens to be about an 11 year old kid um it's it's just an it's an incredible book um and one that you will love to read at this time of year and 11 11 is another kind of it's interesting a significant number circular sure. yes. it's like because you're you're like you finished one cycle like from one to ten and you're beginning a new cycle yeah, it's yeah, it's the start, it's the start of a the start of a new. It's breaking into a new level of of uh, of existence. Yeah, um, but uh, we didn't mention yet, and we should really mention the the brilliant BBC Sounds podcast, which is uh going live this oh, week yes. as well, uh by Robert McFarlane. Um, so we'll leave a link to that in our show notes too. Um, uh, they're doing a dramatization of The Dark Is Rising to coincide with the time of year that it's set. 
Um, and I can't wait to listen to it. And I'm sure you guys, hopefully after listening to this, uh, you will also go and listen to that because uh, I can't wait. It's going to be great. And I, the shout out to another brilliant podcast called Backlisted in which Robert McFarland and uh, Jackie Morris discuss this book. Yeah, we'll leave a link to that too because it's, it is a fantastic episode. Yeah, for sure. How did this book shape you, Sinead? Well, Susan, uh, as you might have guessed, I'm really into medieval stuff. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so for sure, uh, this book is one of the ones I read. Um, like, I mean, I know I read it as a kid, but I read it like the most significant reading of it for me was in my sort of early 20s between college and graduate school when I was trying to forge a career doing various other things. Um, and definitely it's one of the books that I it made me pick up um, medieval studies as my as my graduate work um, with the aim yeah. of eventually becoming a medievalist, which I mean, I didn't, it didn't, my life didn't end up, and didn't end up going in that direction, but uh, I am delighted to be here sitting, talking on a podcast with you about children's books uh, and also drawing on stuff that I learned and that I love deeply still in my heart, um, uh, the medieval stuff. That's such a part of me, such a, such a, such a deep and meaningful part of, of, person that I am and uh, books like this one and Alan Garner's work definitely put me on that path you know um so that's how it shaped me shaped me into me Jen how did how did it shape you um I think this book is deep deep in my soul and in my bones and it's this book speaks to like if you are a medievalist at heart I am stone age <laughs> at heart like Brilliant. I am pagan sun worshipper mm. um i am that too i have to admit but yes yeah definitely go for it like i like stone circles um solstices circles <laughs> anything <laughs> like that like i think this book probably spoke to that something that was deep in me anyway but also brought that to the fore um like i'm just I'm just so influenced by like I love winter I love snow I love the the magic of of the cold mm -hmm. um the way that the snow changes everything yeah and you don't know what's underneath it and anything could be underneath this yeah, um, this is why we're friends Susan this is why we yeah. work so well together we absolutely that's me 100% yeah <laughs> and I also I think one of the things I love about this book is it's is kind of everything that we spent this podcast talking about, like the richness, the like the deep time, the the layers and layers and layers and layers and echoes of myth, folklore, history, literature that are all like packed so effortlessly into this book. And the sense that like when Will walks out of his house, that winter solstice, his birthday morning as like he's just coming into his power as an old one and he walks along like an old road and he's starting to kind of feel the power of that old road the book reminds me that if you go out into the landscape and you walk you're also you're you're, you're drawing on you're feeling the power of all of the myth and all of the folklore and all of the story and all of the people and all of the feet that have walked before you all absolutely. of the feet that have walked before me yeah. and yeah, yeah. that is one of the things I love about this book is that recognition of that and celebration of that and that's something that Will recognizes and that the book relies upon in its narrative it relies on all of this all of this all of these stories that you you feel but you don't need to know to appreciate the power of the book exactly yeah yeah it speaks to something very deep in me too um, yeah and it's been a joy to actually read it again and to read it with such you know to read it with a with a with an eye to talking about it you know it's 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 one thing to read a book to read the book but to read it when you really want to read it to get it into your head to say right this yeah. is what I want to talk about it's a, it's a different level of reading so I really enjoyed it and I enjoyed so much drawing out the the medieval references that you know I, I kind of was aware of before but I had never really thought about you know the, the Hawken uh, resonance is that really you know I just I always loved that part of the story that the Hawk and Merriman connection in the Dark is Rising and when you when I thought about it in relation to Pierce Plowman as well I was like the the the, the Hawken and Pierce Plowman gets his redemption at the end he he gets to mm. go to heaven he gets to redeem himself he gets to throw off his 
coat of sin and and become become fresh and new again and i you know i hope i hope the same for hawking and the dark is rising you know it's it's a bit more complex in that book you know but um but the scene the scene at the end when when he and he and merriman have their final goodbye is just one that will always stay with me it's uh to me it's it's that that's what the book is about it's about those two characters um you know it's funny how sometimes the, the protagonist is a is a is a secondary concern <laughs> um but there's definitely, there's definitely there's there's such depth in this in this novel and i really really do encourage anybody who hasn't uh, read it yet to go and get a copy and read it at this time of the year and yes. like i like i tend to do read it every every december i try to read the dark is rising because it's just such a perfect book for this time of the year mm-hmm. um, yeah yes absolutely it's, and it's yeah just read it at this time of the year and hope for the return of the sun hope for the return of the sun exactly <laughs> but also enjoy <clears throat> the dark dream time of winter full of magic and wildness and- i'm so glad somebody else is like me and who would be very happy to be in the dark dream time of winter for a bit longer actually um, <laughs> yeah so like a happy solstice everyone happy solstice indeed um and thank you so much for being here uh, to the end of this podcast episode and also to the end of season one for from story shaped um as we said at the top of the episode we're we're so thrilled to have come to this point and we're so happy for all the listeners and all the support and all the happy messages we've received um and all the all the just all the joy that has greeted the the birth of this podcast um we really seem to have uh found a, a niche for ourselves that people are, are are really enjoying um uh being here with us and we're just we're, we're really happy so we have plenty more people lined up for next season we will be back <laughs> yes we will, we be, will back. be back we're not going away <laughs> we're just taking a little rest for the dark part of the year <laughs> we'll take a little break for january um and we'll be back uh, later in 2023 um with some more story shaped episodes um and we hope you'll all be there waiting for us uh, when we when we return um but until then it is farewell from me Sinead O'Hart happy festivities to all of you who celebrate at this time of year um may you all have a, a peaceful and and book filled uh, I guess celebration <laughs> and it's goodbye from me and enjoy the wild dreamy magic dark okay bye everybody thanks so much you've been listening to story shaped with susan cahill and sinead o'hart follow us on twitter at story shaped pod and don't forget to subscribe on the streaming service of your choice so that you never miss an episode music by tony betts Mm -hmm.